Welcome to Freedom Files, where we speak with interesting people who have served time in prison, earned their freedom, and today live life with purpose and meaning. Today, I'm talking to Taylor McShann, who is 32 years old, lives in Kingsland, Texas, and was released on parole in March of 2020 after serving nearly seven years in prison on two counts of intoxication manslaughter for a tragic car accident he was involved in that left two people dead. Well, good morning, Taylor. Morning, Mr. Mr. Cox. How are you doing? Good. Taylor, I remember when we first met at the Ellis Unit in March of 2019. I wanted to ask you if you ever saw yourself winding up at a place like the Ellis Unit. As in prison in general? Yeah. Uh, Growing up, definitely went through life never having anybody in my family that I knew of going to prison. Um, It wasn't ever really a thought, especially in my childhood. Uh, I grew up playing baseball. That was my life, going to school, hanging with friends, and then even uh, going to college for baseball and even being out on my own then. It just was really never a thought. It wasn't something I never felt like I was a person that would be getting in trouble or not to say that I was above getting in trouble, but I just really never saw that as a possibility. It wasn't ever even in my mind. So I definitely never thought about ending up at, you know, Ellis unit, having an interview with you. How would you describe yourself growing up as a a kid and going into college? What, what kind of person were you? Well, going into it, all I ever thought about was baseball in school, and uh, that was all I really knew. Um, my mom was just my biggest fan, and it was always about, well, what do we need to do next, and what's your plan? And uh, she kept me very grounded. Uh, she always had my best intentions for me. So even when I was around, you know that age where you're starting to want to explore and kind of go out a little more and hey mom I kind of want to go over to my buddy's house knowing you're probably not going to go to your buddy's house uh, she saw through a lot of that so she really um, I wouldn't say she was overbearing Um, I just think she was very smart and uh, tried her best to kind of keep me grounded so all through high school you know it was I never wanted to disappoint her and had such a hard time lying to her that really didn't do a whole lot other than baseball, you know. I want to turn to the Hansons. When did you come to know the Hansons, and um, when did you begin uh, dating Valerie? The first time I met the Hansons, it was she had asked me if I wanted to come down for the weekend. I was like, well, sure. Like, I understand. You have two little girls, and it's not easy for you to have somebody watch them or just Maybe it's not comfortable for you to bring your two daughters to my house to a guy that, yes, you know me, but maybe just started seeing, and I understand all that. So, yeah, I drove down there, and I will never forget just pulling up, seeing uh, Valerie's uh, oldest daughter, and I want to say two of her sisters were walking down the road leading up to their house, and 
they gave me such a hard time because I know for a fact I was going slow and I tried to avoid them as far over to the left as I could and I did but of course they came in the house telling Valerie I wasn't there five minutes like I don't know who that was but he tried to hit us and I'm like <laughs> I'm right here like I definitely did not and they were just trying to be funny you know just like oh gosh and the way uh, Evelyn greeted me and uh, just like you know well just welcome boy you know I'm glad you're here I'm so happy to meet you and just like it was just like a huge family like there's so many people in this house I I grew up just me and my mom and now it's uh, Evelyn Henry Valerie, her two daughters, Miranda, Natalia, and Andrea was over there. Then plus, you know, any of them could have any amount of friends over at any time. And it was just always like, it just felt like this big family all the time. It was never a dull moment. Uh, And uh, just how it worked out from January onward. So you go from working hard socializing, dancing in honky-tonks to reconnecting with Valerie and going from no plan, no thinking about the future to holding her girls, talking to her specifically about plans for your life together. I mean, that's a big transition. Very big. Uh, Definitely very big. (laughs) And so... You're going along, and what happened to Valerie in September of 2010? Um, I remember being at work, and uh, it was on the 17th. It was almost a week after my birthday, and uh, her youngest daughter's birthday party was that weekend. Uh, And I just remember my phone going off in my pocket, and it just kept going off and I'm in the middle of welding and I'm not thinking much of it and it just keeps going off and I'm just like okay okay like I finally get into my phone I see that uh, uh, Valerie's sister Andrea which with her like mini me uh, they have the same biological mom so they look a lot alike and uh, she was I had a bunch of missed calls and I finally stepped outside to call her, and it's like as soon as I answered, or she answered, I knew what it was. Uh, she had told me that uh, Valerie had had a car wreck on her way to uh, drop the girls off, and that she had uh, that she was gone. I remember that's what she said. And so, I am so sorry about that. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, obviously. Uh, it's still hard some days. Um, it's never been easy for me, um, and I'm sure it's the same with her family. But you have to. I mean, it'll be uh, ten years in six, what twelve days. Will be ten years, and I mean, it's always going to be a part of my life. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm still here with her family, uh, but at the time, I didn't know what to do. I uh, 
lost my father when I was five. And it was very sudden. And I just remember, well, I don't remember much because I was five years old, first of all. But um, I just remember being in a state of disbelief for a long time. And then, like, I, I had come home from kindergarten and my mom told me that uh, something similar to what Andrea told you. Uh, my mom told me my dad was gone and wasn't coming back, and I didn't get it. And um, I just remember laying on my bed and crying so long and not, um, you know, and at the time, I, looking back on it, I was thankful I was five because I felt like I've really experienced in my emotions and not holding anything in and trying to do anything other than being a five-year-old who just figured out that my dad was gone. And um, I tell you what, I just think losing people we love is one of the most difficult things that can happen in our lives. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, at the time, my cousin was actually working at that same shop with me. Uh, he was working nights over in the pipe department, and I was welding pressure vessels. And, I mean, I just told Andrew I'd be there. And I hung up the phone and went straight to him, and I told him, and, I remember just, I told him, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I got to go. And and he was like, okay, well, uh, I rode with somebody. And so he told me he'd get a ride home. I could take his truck home so I could get to my truck and pack my things. And uh, so, yeah, I got home. And, uh, we had another roommate at the time that I'd become really close with, uh, Charlie and uh, so he was at the house. He worked from home at the time. And, you know, I just, I think I lost it. And, because I was numb the whole way home. And then it really hit. And he was there, you know, I, I had to have a few drinks and started packing my things. And I remember, uh, just going to Luling and I, you know, I had to call HR and tell them I didn't know when I'd be back and that I just knew I needed to be there and they were really understanding and I want to say I, I spent a couple weeks there and uh, it was a pallbearer and just, it was a time where me and Valerie's family we're just, we just got to be there, you know, we didn't do a whole lot, a lot of nights, just <laughs> me and all the sisters just laying in bed, just, you know, here we are, like, <laughs> this is what we're doing, um, and, you know, I was drinking a lot, um, and, 
it just was I didn't know what else to do, how else to cope. You know, I did the best I could, which, I mean, did I do a good job? No, but, uh, you know, we do all we know how to do when we're in those situations. So uh, I learned a lot from that, though, as far as how to handle things. And I think the fact that I wasn't sober kind of hindered me in how I could have done things better. But you learn from that whenever you uh, quit drinking, quit doing those things. But I try to numb everything out was my, my biggest issue. Uh, but Absolutely. Yeah. So how did that time together affect your relationship with the Hanson family? Um, it just brought us closer. Uh, Evelyn just, I remember her telling me that she was like, I lost my daughter. She told me she wasn't going to lose her son. Well, her commitment to you really kind of came through and became very evident a year and a half later, right? Yeah. And and as we're talking, um, what is striking me is all the turns in your life that weren't on any plan that you encountered and you've dealt with and that have you been the man you are today. Right. They're just a part of your life experience. Definitely. And so in January of 2012, you're out with a friend, not unlike uh, other times, right? Right. And so tell me what happened when you went out. Was it was it any different from going out any other time? No, definitely not. It was just started. Uh, my friend and I and his girlfriend were at my house. Uh, I was living in my own place by then. I had leased a little house out on some land outside of Sealy. And, uh, you know, and his girlfriend had come over. I remember making spaghetti for us and just hanging out. And she ended up having to go home. And uh, so it just left me and my buddy. And I'm just like, well, what are we going to do? You know, I said, well, let's go out. Okay. Like, it wasn't. Mean anything abnormal for us uh, at the time after Valerie's passing? I I drank a lot, uh, um, not just socially. Uh, being honest with myself, I I drank all the time, uh, every day. Um, sometimes worse, sometimes not so bad. But um, so yeah, it was just like yeah, let's go out. Okay, so went to a few places, uh, and it was. Nothing abnormal for us. We felt like it was just another night out. And so as you get to the end of the night out and uh, you guys are deciding to leave, um, who had driven that night? I want to say Cody drove us that night. Uh, my buddy drove that night. It was in his truck. And um, so – and. His keys to his truck, yeah. Yeah, and and so um, 
but you ended up driving. Yes. And so um, you're leaving, and are you heading to your place, or where are you going? Yeah, I was trying to go back to my house. Um, uh, he worked nights at the time, so he was, you know, one. He could wake up on my couch with me at work, and it's not an issue, you know. That yeah. was one of my closest friends at the time, so it was just, okay, I just got to get us back to my house so I can get up and try to go to work in the morning. And um, so that's that's all I was thinking about doing was getting back to my place. Yeah, and so uh, where were you when you had your accident? Um, the last thing I remember was uh, seeing – the Peach Ridge Road sign, which is in Brookshire. So it's like right across from where there's these uh, polo grounds. There's a big polo ranch um, in Brookshire. And so that's what I remember. That was the last thing I remember really knowing. And, and what happened? I just... I mean, I remember we were trying to play really loud music. Uh, I know I was, because I was, I was tired. You know, I worked a lot of hours. Uh, I was working ten or twelve hours at the time of day, and you know, five to six days a week. You know, we didn't leave till after one o'clock, and so it was late. Tired, drank way too much. Um, and I just really don't remember what happened. I don't, it wasn't like a conscious decision that I remembered. Uh, I just know that I woke up to impact. It was like, that's what woke me up. I don't remember falling asleep. I've never fallen asleep behind the wheel. I've never blacked out. Uh, had never experienced that so I really don't to this day I don't know what happened like what like what decision that did I make that night that that's what was the defining moment you know I've always wondered that but it just I never see anything in that story like what happened it's just not there so when you make impact what did you make impact with? There was a a car on the inside left shoulder on I-10 that was parked, uh, and I pretty much hit it directly from the back, um, going really fast. And I remember at that point, killing. My buddy was just screaming, like, just upset, like, didn't know what happened, like, why did it happen, like, I guess he was asleep too, Um, and we both were just like, oh my gosh, like, wow, how are we, I remember thinking, like, what even happened, and uh, the truck, like, for me, like, Everything was pushed back up against me. You know, I had to basically crawl myself out because my legs were touching the dash, uh, kind of pinned in a little bit. Um, 
and we're up against the concrete barrier on the left and just remember like I did something really bad like this is not good like what what happened you know trying to piece everything together and uh, trying to figure it out and seeing this car when I get out it had it actually caught fire and just not really knowing what was going on, just being so confused and just scared. And, um, I guess there were just so many moments where I didn't understand what was going on. And then it, I just remember the moment whenever a police officer had asked me who was driving and I told him I was. And he told me, you know, to put my hands behind my back and I was just like it was at that moment where it was just like I couldn't believe it right and I was hearing what people were saying and I just didn't understand it was like it didn't feel real right I was like how could this have happened like why did it happen like why did it have to be them like it wasn't even a thought about me. It was like, why did that have to happen to them because of me? You know, it was like, how is that fair? How, how am I walking and they're not, you know? Yeah. They didn't seem for that to happen. So when you put your hands behind your back, where were you taken then? They first took me to... Uh, a hospital in Katy um, to get me checked out. I had, I had a pretty bad cut in my left hand. It was bleeding pretty good, and uh, so they took me to a hospital. I remember it was just one officer driving me. They checked my hand. I, they took they drew my blood and. Uh, Honestly, like I picked glass out of my hand for several weeks, so I don't blame them for that, though. I know what it would feel like for maybe a mother to have to take care of some guy that shows up drunk after doing what I did. You know, I'm not saying she was negligent of her job. I just know that people feel with emotion, and I don't blame her at all but so I wasn't at the hospital very long but where did uh, they take you once you were checked out at the hospital uh, to Waller County uh, Waller County Jail in uh, Hempstead and um, what do you remember about being put in jail I remember just being so mad at myself just I've never known that kind of like disappointment in myself. Uh, I was disgusted. Like it was, I wasn't even scared of being there. It like, all I could think about was just like, how did I let this happen? Like, how was I so irresponsible? How, why? Like, and of course, you know, with all the alcohol I drank, it was just fueling all my emotions and it was just, 
it was like I was trying to do my best to numb myself and just be like, you know what, you just need to relax and process and like you are in jail, like you're about to be gone probably for a long time. Like you need to kind of just breathe and I couldn't, it was just nonstop in my head, just how, why, you know, and yeah, they processed me and uh, I remember I didn't even put, like I got put in a tank that I didn't even have an open bed, so I threw this little mattress under the TV and uh, laid down and immediately just tried to shut everything out and went to sleep. And that must have been uh, early in the morning by that time, right? It was probably four or five in the morning by then. And and so um, who is the first person that you saw outside of law enforcement uh, while you were in jail? Um, I want to say it was it was Phil. And who's Phil? Phil Baker. Uh, that was my lawyer, my attorney. And isn't it a small world thing that we had no idea that I knew Phil Baker? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about uh, meeting Phil Baker for the first time. Um, I had no idea what to expect. Everything was still really hard for me as far as just processing what I did just it was just like I was still in shock with myself I was very upset with myself and this guy walks in and sits down and he's very serious looking uh, you could tell he was gonna do his job uh, which I didn't even know what his job was at the time I was like why do I need a lawyer I know what I did like <laughs> um, what is there to to fight? You know, like we're not fighting anything. Um, I did what I did, so I'm not going to plead not guilty into something I know I did, and that's my thought. And he was just trying to explain to me that his job was to try to make sure I didn't have to do the maximum amount of time, and that he needed to get me out on bond he said that you know that was our best chance was if he could get me out rather than me have to try to fight it from in there and I know the biggest thing he told me was that uh, he just looked me straight in the eyes and told me he was like do you know that you've had your last drink and how did that hit you it was like I'm not trying to make light of it but I was just looking at him and like you didn't have to tell me that. I already knew that. And, um, but it really drove like the nail home for me. It was just like, he's right. Like, if I ever want to have any chance at living life, I can't drink again. Um, why? I didn't want to drink again. I didn't want to. I mean, how could I ever drink again? Like, <laughs> The last time I drank, what happened? Like, that would always be, into this day, that's my thought. Like, if 
anybody ever asks me, like coworkers or friends, like, uh, you don't drink anymore? And I'm like, would you? Or, you know, why would I want to? Or I, I have no desire for it. It's, uh, but what Phil told me, it was just like, wow, he's, I already felt it, but he's so right. You know, that was it. I mean, the fact that I'm even walking right now, that I'm alive, I'm breathing, like, if that's not a big enough gift, then who would I be to pick up another drink again? Right. What would that say about me? That everything was in vain? That it was for nothing? Like, I just, no, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. So, um, one of the letters I have is from a guy named Ron J. Wilson. <laughs> Who is Ron J. Wilson? Well, um, after I did two months in county and was able to bond out, uh, I moved in with the Hansons. They were living in Luling. Uh, and I was on house arrest, and I had an ankle monitor on, and... Uh, I had a curfew, and there were only certain things I could leave the house for. Um, and Phil really helped push for me to be able to leave the house to go to AA meetings. And, you know, my aunt has now over 30 years of sobriety through NA, and uh, she's a big supporter of that for me. And it was just like, you know, I knew that's what I was going to try. And, I walked into the little uh, Luling AA group and uh, this kind of California slick back hair with tattoos guys sitting down and uh, you know I'm kind of feeling everybody out and wondering what this is all about and I hear him start speaking and I'm just like I did not expect that and everything he said was so it just felt like he was saying everything to me like i was like how does everything every word out of your mouth pertain to me in some way shape or form like how am i relating to your story when we are probably night and day different and uh that's kind of how that worked for me with the program it was just like no matter who was talking you could see some kind of thing that resonated in you uh, like oh wow like I remember that or yeah that's how I felt or oh wow I went through that too or you know and so Ron and I immediately hit it off and uh, I ended up asking him about you know sponsorship and working the steps and I mean to this day we're still in contact even though he ended up moving back to California but he's a very successful uh businessman and uh, you know we talk on the phone and we've kept a connection all these years and he's the one that helped me work the steps and well and in his uh letter he said as most newcomers are taylor was quiet the first night i met him however he did show common manners and a level of interest in the program that I don't see very often with first timers. So he said you uh, asked him some questions at the second meeting about the program. And uh, 
And then he said something. Uh, he said, as is common in our fellowship, I was eager to assist him and introduce him to the protocol of our meeting. So what is this fellowship that he's talking about? A lot of what he speaks of about the program is kind of what I refer to as like the program lingo, if you will. Um, If you walk into a baseball locker room, the guys are talking a certain way. They have their own jargon. It's very similar to AA. There is a AA language, uh, so to speak, and um, he is very fluent in it. So he refers to the program that way. And um, but he's right. I mean, there are certain ways that meetings are held. There are certain ways to uh, to share inside a meeting and uh, to talk about certain things. So when you're a newcomer, you don't know any of that and. You know, you're just there. Most of the time, you're still shaking from not drinking or something. And you know, I had a couple of months sober already, so I was I was clean. You know, I was dried up, as they say. And uh, so, yeah, I, I wanted to know how it all worked, and I was just like, I don't, I see, I feel like I relate to you, like that you and I would work well. And being a small meeting like it was in Lulong, Texas. Uh, that was the person who I was just like, yep, okay. I know how this uh, is supposed to work. I'm supposed to find a sponsor, and then they're supposed to hold my hand through all this and you know, go over the program and go over the steps and teach me all this stuff, and that is how it works. And uh, you know, I asked Ron to be that for me, and he gladly accepted it. And uh, we spent many a night uh, on his porch uh, with a, a spiral notebook in my hand and <laughs> A highlighter and going through uh, the AA book together and just, uh, you know, telling each other stories, um, our experiences, our, you know, what we were like then and what we were like now and how we got there. And it really is a fellowship. It is um, not quite the same as what you would think on Sunday mornings, but. Um, because AA is not a religious program, uh, but it is definitely a fellowship nonetheless. It is a common, it's a group of people who commonly wouldn't be together. They can come together and relate and almost become family. And Ron was definitely and still is a big brother to me. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you said a moment ago um, at that first meeting, how you're listening and you're feeling like Ron is speaking directly to you and he looks different from you and you are surprised at how the things that he's saying are resonating so deeply with you. Did you find that you had that kind of relationship and resonance through the program with others? Definitely. I mean, I was, I've been to meetings in Austin, Luling, San Marcos, New Braunfels, uh, and, and, and even now in Marble Falls, Kingsland. Uh, you know, the program is the same, it doesn't change. 
and uh, to reference it for other people, it might be like, okay, well, the Bible hasn't changed. Uh, new editions of the AA book come out, but it's still the same literature. So a program, if somebody has 50 years of sobriety, or if they have five seconds of it, that book hasn't changed, and the program itself hasn't changed, so therefore the fellowship hasn't. Um, so it's like no matter where you go, you're going to find the same, maybe not the same people, but the same purpose and the same common goal, regardless of if you're in a group of a thousand people and uh, a huge meeting at Dallas or something, or if you're in a little bitty town in Luling, Texas, with like eight or nine people, and are the same people that are there every Tuesday and Thursday. Like, it's still the same program. And uh, so, yeah, it was just like, I would always hear people share in other meetings that were just like, you always find yourself in their stories. And I think that's one of the most rewarding parts about AA is because whenever you feel like you're alone and that nobody else can have any idea what you're going through, somebody will stand up there and say, you know, I, w I was in a car wreck once and I hurt somebody. And you're just like, okay, like, wow. Like, that's somebody I can talk to or somebody who says, yeah, I lost my wife in a car accident. And you're just like, okay. Or somebody will talk about their childhood. Like, yeah, I didn't grow up with a dad. And, and you're looking at these people and they could be a normal blue collar kind of person or it could be an attorney. I mean, we all have these things that happen to us in our life and you start to realize that you can't ever judge a book by its cover and that everybody has their own life experiences and their upbringings and everything fuels you to the person that you are today. And that's what, if anything, which that program taught me a lot, it's really taught me about acceptance and understanding people and not ever judging them and just being open. And so it sounds like sharing is a big part of the program. So how did it feel to, I mean, you're talking about people sharing their experiences. How did it feel for you to share your experience when you started doing that? The first time I explained why I was sober was really, really hard because I felt like I was just bearing my soul. Like, here I am in a group full of strangers and I'm about to tell you the worst thing I've ever done in my life. And it, you know, at that time I felt like that's all that defined me was that I had done this thing, that I had, you know, taken two lives, that this was my life for here on out was I'm that guy. Like, and, you know, Ron really encouraged me and was like, "You, if you ever want to receive anything out of this program, you have to give it in order to receive, you know. And he showed me the page in the book where it says it. And I was like, okay, you're not just saying this. Like, this is part of it. Okay. And, <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, I, I did it. Uh, 
I mean, in a short little way, I just explained that, you know, I had made a horrible mistake and that this was the result of it and this is why I quit drinking and why I don't want to drink and why I'm in the program and why I'm going to do everything I can one day at a time to make sure I never drink again. And that's why. And I couldn't believe it that after the meeting, everybody in that meeting came up to me and just told me thank you. And I was like, for what? <laughs> like, well, why would you be thankful that you had to hear me tell you that? And, and how, how, how did, how did getting thanks for being that vulnerable and sharing that about yourself, how did that make you feel? My first thought was it wasn't real. It wasn't realistic. I was like, well, they're just trying to be nice. Like, And then as time goes by and you hear things from other people, like whenever they share their story and you're like, wow, I can't believe that happened to them. And then you start thinking about the things in your own life and you're like, wow, I've been pretty close to that or I've been through that. And it's just like you find that common ground and you're able to come together through it. And I mean, it's weird to think that it gives you strength. Like, how is that possible? But there is something that comes from that. Like when somebody shares their life, you know, hardships, um, the things that have made them become the person who they are, it, it's like building a wall. You know, it's just another brick to solidify that foundation. And for me, it was whenever I started sharing more about what I went through as far as, you know, losing Valerie and uh, what let the, you know, because I couldn't handle it. And what that's what really fueled my drinking. And then to the point of where I had my wreck and, you know, that knowing that I had done something so bad that I didn't know if I could come back from it. And there was strength in their stories that I wasn't alone, that I'm not the only person that's made mistakes. And that it helped me really understand that what I did was a mistake. Like it was an accident. And because even though I knew in my heart it was an accident, it was just like, how can you be forgiven for that? Like, how can you ever move past it? And uh, AA really helped me with that. It was more of a, like, not. it wasn't just about getting sober for me. It was, because honestly, I feel like without AA, I would still be sober. But I know AA has made me grow as a person. It's made me a stronger person. It's made me more open to other people about acceptance and uh, being there as a friend and as a family member and knowing that I can be open and available instead of trying to push everybody away and that all the things I thought about as a child growing up that I wanted to be as a man, that AA kind of helped push that out of me and, you know, let it stay in the surface where it belongs and be 
in the front of my mind instead of in the back. It was definitely a way to help me grow up and become what I believe is supposed to be a man. Outstanding. Well, I want to move forward to when you were sentenced and ultimately you were sentenced to 10 years on two counts of intoxication manslaughter, right? Correct. And so how, tell me about um, that sentence being entered. Uh, What happened? Well, it was a blessing. Um, Going into that weekend, my only uh, offer had been uh, 20 years aggravated, stacked on top of 20 years aggravated. And that was pretty much what I felt like I was going to get. I felt like that's what I deserved. Um, I kind of went that whole time out on bond and on house arrest, knowing that this was my chance to clean up my side of the street, uh, make amends, uh, spend time with family and friends, and kind of... uh, get ready to go away for a while and uh, I had become at peace with it. I knew that um, uh, to this day I feel like that was the least I could do, you know, uh, to repay them and I don't know why but it ended up working out that they allowed me to sign for a 10-year sentence, um, non-aggravated, and ran together. So I only had to sign for 10 years, and I didn't have to go through a trial. Um, I did have to make a public apology in the courtroom, and I'm so glad they wanted me to do that. Um, It was really hard, but I knew I had to. Like, it was... It's like, I mean, I didn't want to live the rest of my life feeling like maybe there was any ounce that they thought maybe I wanted something like that to happen, which I never expected them to think that, but they had every right to think whatever they wanted to think. And I just was glad I got the chance to tell them how sorry I was and to take responsibility for it. And... So I was able to do that and, and, uh, you know, just some sort of closure. Um, It really wasn't about me. It was, I was just hoping it would be something to help them because at that point in my life, I had tried so hard to push away any selfish thoughts. Like, it was what can I do for everybody else? Like, uh, I knew I was going away. Like, this isn't time for me to be selfish. This is time for me to make sure, is my mom okay? Is my dad okay? Is my grandma okay? Uh, is Evelyn and Henry going to be okay? Are my sisters going to be okay? Uh, my friends, you know, uh, the ones that really stuck there through me, through everything. I was like, you know, I just need to make sure my side of the, the road is clean and I'm going to go do my time. And then I only ended up with, a 10-year sentence, and it was just like, okay, um, I'm getting a second chance. Like, I mean, 
if I did every day, it's still only 10 years. Like, what a blessing. Wow. Like, I thought I was going to do a minimum of 20. And uh, now it's like I'm getting a second chance. And I didn't feel like I deserved it, honestly. Uh, to this day, I feel like how, how do you repay what happened? Like, there's no way to ever do that. And, but I signed for my time and uh, went to Waller County again and uh, started that part of my journey. And so before you are taken to Waller County, did Phil Baker talk to you or have a chance to let you see anything before you were taken back to county? Yes, I had been already handcuffed and was sitting in kind of like a holding room, maybe a conference room right next to uh, the courtroom. And I remember him poking his head in and asking the officers that were in there watching me if, uh, they could, if he could borrow me for a second. And they agreed. I stood up and I was, I was still just really just, I wouldn't even know how to explain my emotions at that time. It was just like I wanted to feel some kind of closure, but yet I didn't. I wanted to feel so many emotions, but I couldn't. It was just like I was, I was almost numb. And then I stood up and I walked over to the doorway and he put his arm around me and was just like, I want you to look in that courtroom. I did, and it was, you know, the whole time my family was on one side and their family was on another side. And when I looked out in there, they were together and they were hugging and crying. And it was just like, <laughs> how is that possible? Like, how can an understanding or love like that be possible? At a time like this, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> it was probably, for me, one of the most beautiful things I'll ever see in my life. Well, you you get to county, yeah. and I assume that they then put you on chain and get you to a transfer facility? Um, they actually, I stayed there for 45 days. Um, and then, yes, I finally got taken over to uh, Huntsville and got dropped off at the holiday unit to what's an intake facility. Um, when they do a lot of your paperwork, your processing, they do blood work. They, I mean, it's like every day for a couple of weeks you're having to go do some kind of test or interview or I mean, get your ID card, all kinds of things, it seems like. And then once all that's done, uh, you kind of just sit there and then wait to find out where you're going next. And then, yeah, so I was there for like 35 days. And so how was Holiday different from County? Um, the, 
Waller County was it was very small, and the little dorm or tanks I was in was only like 12 person. Um, they were usually full. Um, it just seemed like it was chaotic a lot of the times. Um, and then I get to holiday, and it seemed like there was like a lot more structure, like everybody had that uh, been here, done that mentality. Like, And I'm walking in like, I don't know anything. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to do. Um, but the dorms were a lot bigger, more open. Uh, it was just like every day, just kind of watching the next person, like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And like, oh, okay, we're going to go eat now. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, always having to ask questions and felt like I was always bothering people like, hey, uh, this little lay-in that I have says I'm supposed to go to the admin office. Where is that? And they're, you know, rolling their eyes at me like, Oh, you don't know about that? Okay, well, you know, I was very uh, green uh, to prison. Um, you know, kind of just stayed to myself, especially at the holiday unit. Didn't really talk to anybody I was spoken to. And, uh, it was an intimidating thing, too. It was just like, I feel like I'm so out of place. and uh, How am I going to relate to some of these guys, you know? So where did they transfer you to from Holiday? I went to uh, Pam Lynchner State Jail in Humble. Uh, and that was like walking into a completely different place. Uh, it was not like Holiday. There was zero structure. Um, uh, wild, uh, chaotic. Um, Oftentimes, just like you couldn't believe what you were seeing, <laughs> uh, it was different. It was, I was like, oh, okay, this is what prison's gonna be like. This is gonna be a long ride. Um, but just like anything else, you get used to it. Uh, you come to understand what to expect, and once you know what to expect, even the craziest things that do happen are almost normal. What would you say to somebody who's never been to prison that's going? I mean, is there anything you can say that would help prepare somebody for the experience? I, the best thing I would say is uh, it's not as bad as you think that it's okay to be yourself. Do not try to uh, emulate or conform to what you see around you. That you being just a normal you is more than sufficient to get through it. Um, you don't have to let the things that you see happening around you define you. That the pressure of being there is not what you think it's going to be. Um, there's going to be hard times, uh, and I hate to say it, but there's going to be times where it's almost easy. Uh, but the biggest thing is don't change who you are thinking that you have to conform to anything that's prison because you don't. So when did you finally end up at the LS unit? Well, after, 
about 16 months at Pam Lichner. While I was there, I got my, I wrote to the warden about getting my trustee status and, and told him about my welding and all of that and that I had taken a couple classes. I took a computer-aided drafting course while I was there and stayed out of the, stayed out of the way, stayed out of trouble and he granted me my my S2, which is my trusty flying class, and once I finished my CAD program, I got shipped to the PAC-2 unit, which is the OL Luther unit in Navasota, and was on the trustee camp there for about three and a half years. Um, so I did that before ever going to Ellis. How was it being on the trustee camp? Uh, night and day difference. Uh, you aren't locked away. Um, like we didn't have a big fence around us uh, it was like you're just sitting in these dorms out in the country like uh, you knew what was expected we all had to work but I mean I got to play softball on the weekends I got to uh, come and go out in and out of the dorms as I wanted you know within certain times of course um, I mean it was just like it was a big culture shock after, you know, being gone for a year and a half, being in a pretty wild place to now all of a sudden you're at a place that's very relaxed. People are, they have this custody level knowing that that could help them go home. And, uh, you know, so just complete 180 of what I expected, but in a good way, very good way. And so what did you do work-wise in Navasota? Uh, I had a few jobs. Um, I worked at the dog kennel, which was really fun, getting to uh, take care of the horses and take care of all of our dogs and, uh, you know, getting to put on the suit and fighting the dogs and uh, trying to run away from them and going on these two-mile hikes in and out of the woods by yourself. And uh, Navasota is a beautiful place. That unit's actually right on the... Uh, Brazos River. So, I mean, literally crawling down into the Brazos and crawling out the other side. And like, you're just like, it felt like freedom. Um, I also started working at the water plants there, the uh, actual water wells that we had, um, the water treatment plant, and the uh, wastewater plant we had. And that was a job I had for the longest time there and ended up getting my Class D uh, TCQ license. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I really liked that job. Uh, I actually really enjoyed learning all about about it and how uh, our, <laughs> our water works from the time it gets pumped out of the ground to the time it gets used and how it goes back into the ground. Uh, so the whole cycle of it is pretty fascinating. So that was a really good job. I really liked it. So you get to the Ellis unit and you uh, you end up being a part of a work squad, right? Right. And so what happened on the work squad? I mean, what, what would you all do? Well, uh, I worked, it was called uh, HROM, which is a Huntsville Regional Outside Maintenance. Um, we had different little crews. Uh, I ended up working with the uh, generator and uh, electronics department, which I really didn't know much about. Uh, 
I knew the generator aspect from welding machines, <laughs> but obviously these weren't welding machines, so it was kind of different for me. But uh, a buddy of mine that I had made at that unit, uh, he was kind of like the guru for all that. Like He was definitely the guy running it, and I just ended up getting to be his helper and to learn. So that was a really interesting job. It was a, a huge culture shock being told the first time, like, well, grab the tools and let's mark them all out because, you know, you have to take inventory of everything in prison. And just grabbing the stuff and walking out of the gate and putting the tools into the truck and then being told to get in the truck. And I'm just like, okay, <laughs> why? Because uh, we got to drive over to this unit. And I'm like, in the truck? <laughs> like, not handcuffed? Nope, not handcuffed. Just get in. Come on, we're burning daylight. Like, okay. And literally, you're driving out into into the world in your TDC white clothes and in the TDC truck and knowing you're about to go to another unit to work and eventually coming back. Like, it was almost like an escape every day. So and that sounded bad using the word escape. <laughs> it, it felt like freedom. You know? Yeah, it was similar to crossing the Brazos. In, yeah. yeah, very much so. Just seeing new things and you know, like, oh, wow, wouldn't they make that car? And <laughs> well, that's a Chevy now? Oh, okay. You know, it was a, it was a good time. Uh, I felt like I was always learning. Uh, it kept me busy. That was one thing that really helped me as far as being gone was that I always had a job. And if they told me I could work 16 hours overnight, I would do it. Like, if they called me out at 2 a.m. to go fix a water line, I was getting up and getting ready, you know, like that was kind of what I felt helped me do my time was to either study and learn and go to school or to work. And and what did you learn was the best way for you to uh, get yourself in a position to be considered for early release? I always tried to look at what classes were available. Um, what because TDC does have a lot of things that are available as far as um, classes, whether it's through Wyndham or Lee College, or uh, they really have a lot to offer. Um, I mean, there's sometimes where I wish they had offered more, but I also had to realize, well, I'm like, I shouldn't expect them to offer me the world, you know. But what they did offer was a lot of opportunities, so I took... I took a lot of classes, uh, trades, computer-aided drafting. I took um, a cognitive intervention class. I took the changes program. I took a bridges to life class. I took an overcomers class. I went to AA meetings the whole time I was there. I went to different church groups. I got baptized while I was there. I mean, I always just stayed busy and Every opportunity I got, I took it. I, at Navasota, I got my associate's degree um, for business management. And the reason I got moved to Ellis Unit was to get my HVAC degree. And I, and I got that as well. And um, I even got 
an associate's degree in biblical studies uh, through correspondence through a Bible college that uh, Miss Evelyn helped me find. Uh, it was just like I had, it felt like that's what I was supposed to be doing there. You know, like I wasn't here to hang out and play basketball all day. Like it was get ready to get out. That was my mentality from day one was like, okay, well, will this make me better for when I get out? Like, I'm not going to be here the rest of my life. Like, even in 10 years, I'm going to be out. So let's do something. What's next? And that was just my mentality the whole time, which is how can I be a better person? I have heard so many people talk about changes, cognitive intervention, Voyager, and other courses that they took and talk about how those classes impacted their thinking and mentality. Did you, what was your experience? Cognitive, because of the unit I was at, they put so many people that were in there that didn't want to be in there. Uh, It was like forced. Uh, You know, you could get disciplinary cases for not going to school. So if you all of a sudden get told you got to be in this class, and you're an inmate that has no desire to go to it, doesn't want it, you know you're getting out in three or four months or something. like. So you go into the classroom and you act up, you know, purposefully. And so with that class, it was a little harder um, because so many people didn't want to be there. So, I mean, you're constantly struggling just to even hear the teacher, let alone her try to tell you things. <laughs> but... I took everything out of it I could. I really liked it. I took that when I first came into the system. Uh, so it really helped me kind of learn more about myself. Um, the changes class, I actually got put into it. The cognitive I had signed up for. So when they put me in changes, I was like, oh my gosh, that could be a good sign. Because it happened to be right, right at the time I was up for parole. And... I was just like, oh my gosh, this is a sign. Like, this is what normally happens for people. You know, they make parole, get put in changes, or they get put in, put in changes and then make parole. And I'm like, I've seen this a bunch of times. And, you know, uh, that's not how it worked out for me. But uh, I still, the whole time, because of that class, most people, that's they're taking it because of parole. So they are listening. They are doing what they need to do at least they might not care about it but at least they're knowing that hey i really need to pay attention and not get in trouble while i'm in here so that class was easier to take a lot out of and i had a pretty cool teacher there that was just you know she didn't take uh, any bs from anybody if guys acted up she just got them out of class you know <laughs> so wow uh, so yeah that was that was good i I took everything I could out of it. Um, it to me sometimes it felt like it didn't. Uh, I could relate, but I felt like it wasn't specifically for me. Um, I only say that because I had that time out on bond that I had really changed a lot and. I didn't feel like I related to a lot of these guys who came into the system with no change. Like um, a guy commits robbery and uh, goes to prison and he never once thought he did anything wrong. Like he just did what he had to do. Well, those are the guys that 
don't take those classes seriously, they can't relate. And so once they do take those classes and they're like, oh, wow, I start, they start learning these things and they're like, I see where I was wrong and oh, wow, I'm like that. Or for me, it was kind of like I had that changes processed into me while out in the world. And so for me, a lot of those classes, it was just like reinstilling things like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I need to keep that up. Or, oh, no, I need to do better at that. Or, you know, so not trying to sound better than anybody, but it was kind of like I had already begun making some of those changes in myself. Who did you communicate with while you were in prison on the outside? I was really fortunate that I had a lot of family and friends that stayed close with me as far as Evelyn and Henry. Uh, I was always in communication with them, my mom, uh, my dad, my grandma. Uh, then, you know, I had my aunt, a lot of friends, well, friends kind of come and go, um, but I did have several friends that were just there throughout all of it. Uh, my buddy Sam, my friends uh, Ryan and Virginia, uh, you know, I had my sisters, as I call them, <laughs> Evelyn's kids. Uh, so I really had a big support system. Uh, I was very fortunate. Did you find that helped a lot? Yeah, it it was really nice because, you know, being a trustee and being able to go to the day room whenever I wanted and, you know, if I just was missing my mom, I could just go out there and call her, you know. And if uh, I received a letter from Evelyn that said, hey, call me, I need to talk to you about something, I could walk out there and do it, you know. It wasn't like, you know, you would get a letter from somebody who said they were going through all this bad stuff and it would just hurt you so bad knowing you couldn't do anything about it or, you know, or if you get a letter from somebody talking about somebody else you know, like, those were difficult letters, like, well, did you hear so-and-so what happened? And you're just like, well, what can I do about it? I can't even reach out to them. So having people to communicate with is a big deal. I mean, mail call Monday through Friday was like what everybody looks forward to. Um, you know, it's like, and that, the way I explain it, to a few people since I've been out, it's like, okay, imagine you have your cell phone, all right, and they tell you you're going to get to check that cell phone one time a day, and it's not whenever you want to, it's whenever somebody else tells you you can, and then whenever you do get to check it, you may or may not have anybody sending you a text or not or having a missed call, and you may or may not be able to return that text or that call. That's what it feels like. <laughs> uh. So some days it's like, wow, I got a few texts and a few pictures and a few phone calls. And then some days it's like I waited all day and nobody said anything. And I was a fortunate one. And I'm not complaining about those bad days. But I knew guys in there that went years without letters or phone calls. And I don't know how they did it. Right. I mean, I knew guys who did less time than me that never once heard from anybody. They had wives and daughters and sons and brothers and sisters. And I mean, here I am doing twice and three times more time as them, and 
I get a phone call every day. If I, it's up to me. I have to call them. So if I don't call anybody that day, whose fault is it? You know? Yeah, they might not answer, and I get that. You know? That's just like out here. If I call you and you don't answer, it's probably because you're busy. Like, it's yeah. not negative. <laughs> it's just how the world works. Yeah. So when did you first become eligible for parole? 2014, uh, in July. I was still at uh, Pam Lichner. I remember going in there and having an interview with this man, and it was the longest parole interview I would ever have. And it lasted well over an hour. I was stuck in count time, which for people that don't know, that means during count time there's no movement. So if me and you were at the chow hall eating and they call count, well, we're probably stuck in the chow hall for at least an hour. Or if we're in class or like I was in an interview, I'm not going back to the dorm until count is cleared. So being that I got stuck in count, we had more time. And Pam Wishner's a state jail, so it's not all TDCJ offenders. It's also state jail offenders. So state jail doesn't have parole. Uh, they have two years maximum sentences. So the day you sign for your time to be a state jail offender, you know your release date. TDC doesn't work that way, obviously. We have the parole system. So he didn't have as many people to see that day. I was his only interview. And, I mean, I walked away knowing I wasn't making parole. I, <laughs> he made that clear without using those words. It was... He was very uh, straightforward about his questions, cut and dry, answer my questions, let's get it over with. Okay. And, you know, I did this every year. I always asked the person interviewing me, knowing that they had no say-so in my parole decision, you know, if they thought I had a good chance. <laughs> and <laughs> the first time was, I don't know if uh, him – with a very straight face, he like refused to answer me basically. And I was just like, okay, <laughs> I get it. Like, I'm probably not going home. Uh, that's fine. And uh, it was like that pretty much every year. Uh, all the years after that, though, it was kind of the interviews were short. They might take five minutes. You leave feeling like, did they really have to call me in here to tell me anything? You know, it's really they call you in there after that first initial interview just to make sure your parole address hasn't changed and that your contact information is the same. And so when was the first time or did you ever have hope that maybe you would be paroled? Um, the time they put me in changes, I was like, oh, my gosh, like I've got close to half of my time done. You know, that seems... Because I was watching guys only do, even with my charge, like two years on a 10. But I was also watching guys with my charge do about nine on a 10. So it was like, where do you fit in the middle? I don't find – it was hard trying to compare yourself to anybody else because it seemed like nothing was ever the same. Uh, so – I was like, well, maybe I might be the fortunate one. You know, maybe all the things I've done in here and that I've stayed out of trouble and that I've done right, you know, maybe this will be it. And they're putting me in changes, so why not? And, you know, they 
gave me what's called a serval, which basically means I'm not going to be eligible for parole. I get denied, and that that was my last chance of actually making parole, like making a program and going to your short way, which basically means uh, release mandatory supervision, which from there on out, it was either you're going home or you're not. That You don't have to go to classes. You've already done too much time on your sentence. And so once that time and I got denied, my mentality switched as far as, okay, I'm going to be here a while. Like, I don't need to stress over parole anymore. Uh, all it's doing is hurting me. It's hurting my family. They're getting their hopes up. And that doesn't need to be the case. And, um, but obviously, like, you know, eventually your family gets, <laughs> they get tired of, you know, the disappointment. And they think, well, what else can we do? And uh, where you came into my life. <laughs> so, um <clears throat> We get to the first few months of this year, and by that time, how much time had you served? Um, so around one month. I can be pretty accurate with it. <laughs> February. February, I was a little over six and a half years uh, had been served, and... I had already seen, or I went in for my parole interview, which means I walked in and signed a piece of paper and walked out. And uh, it was, I felt confident. I was like, I know I've done everything. Like, I feel like I haven't left any stones unturned. Uh, I mean, all I can do is just wait and see. Uh, I wasn't holding my breath. I wasn't nervous. I I got to the point those last few years where it was just like, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and think I'm doing 10 years until they prove otherwise to me. Um, and so even with your help, I knew I was confident. Like I knew we had done everything we could do. But I also knew at the end of the day that sometimes that doesn't matter. And uh, that... You know, the, the parole board has their reasons for the decisions they make, and I have no say-so on that, and you don't. So you kind of have to learn to let go of all that and not let your emotions get attached to what, you know, a group of people decide for your life. Um, it's hard to do it, but uh, after being denied six times, uh you kind of have to learn to accept it. And that's what I did. You know, I accepted completely that it was no longer, it never was my decision to be made. It never would be. And that uh, if I did everything I was supposed to do, why am I stressing over it? And I knew I had done everything I needed. So they're either going to let me go or they're not. And that was my mentality going into uh, this last parole. So do you remember where you were? when you got the news that you were being paroled? I remember receiving a JPay from a guy named Ed <laughs> telling me uh, how the interview went. And it was actually the same day that you had that interview. I was shocked at how quickly I was able to get that JPay. Um, 
but you didn't say I had made it. You just told me how good you, or how well you thought it went, and that one of the members of the parole board, you know, told you to tell me to, and to pat myself on the back, or you know, maybe I'm not saying it the right way, or what he said uh, verbatim, but it was basically that I had done a good job, and I was just like, um. That's good. Uh, how do I process that? Like, how do I take that? And uh, I was just like, wow. Well, you know, the next day I go to work and I <laughs> I asked my boss uh, at the time I was working at the ag shop in the Ellis unit. And I was like, hey, uh, I might have my parole answer. Is there any way you can find out? And uh, sure enough, he pulled it up on the computer, and there it was. And I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, it didn't seem real. Like, it, as happy as I wanted to be, like, I remember just just taking a deep breath, just like, I thought more about my family than I did me. It was just like, oh, God, they don't have to worry anymore, you know. And and then, you know, as the day went on, it was just like, I'm going home. Like, I'm really going home. And then it was kind of like you have moments of like, well, where is home? <laughs> what is home? You know, like, what is that going to be like now? Uh, what am I going to do? And, you know, you second-guess yourself. You, Everybody tries to tell you, like, oh, man, you're going to be okay. Like, you've just done a bunch of time. And you're like, have I? Like, that's not reassuring me. <laughs> like, I feel like I haven't done that much, but I have and I haven't. And it's like you want to just – it got to the point after a few days of getting to talk with Evelyn and talking to my dad and making phone calls and – uh, writing letters and letting the people I wanted to know know just like it just slowly for me it slowly sank in and then you know you see a release date and you're like oh wow you know all these steps that make it more real going to see reentry uh, and knowing that hearing somebody from TBC tell you you are going to be released like not just seeing it on a computer screen but you know, it's like there's all these little things that happen that just, okay, it's a little more real. Okay, it's a little more real. And then, you know, I was going through all this while COVID was really starting to hit the prison systems. And so all of a sudden they're not transferring us anywhere unless it's medical emergencies and all of the things that normally happen in prison as far as being released stopped happening. And I was just like, well, my life hasn't been easy. Why would I expect this to be easy? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, my date got pushed back several times. Um, then all of a sudden they tell me that I'm going to get released from the Ellis unit. And that I'm going to be the first person to be released from there since the 70s. And I'm just like, how does this work? And they tell me I'm going to be the first person to ever be released from a trustee camp. 
And I'm like, what do you mean I'm going to be released from here? And they, uh, the warden actually told me, he was like, yeah, you're going to go put those clothes on. You're going to walk out that door. And I'm like, visitation? Like the same door my family's been walking through to come see me all these years? That's where I'm going to walk out of? He's like, yep, you're going to get in that car and you're going to leave. And I'm just like, okay. Like, like you, every time you get transferred in TDC, there's all these things you have to go through. You have to have your property searched. You have to get your mattress and your sheets taken away. You've got to uh, wait up all night to finally get to get on a chain bus. you got to be shackled. you got to get shackled next to somebody. You know, you've got to make all the pit stops at different units, riding in the Bluebird, you know, the TDC buses and all the paperwork. And I literally packed my stuff the night before I was released, went to bed like any other normal night, got up, drank coffee, hung out with some of my buddies and waited for the lady, the officer to tell me to go to visitation and leave. And that's literally what I did. I picked up my bag of stuff I wanted to take home with me and walked into visitation, did my paperwork, went in the bathroom and changed, and walked out. Got in the car and left. And who who was there to pick you up? Um, Evelyn and uh, Natalia, and then and my dad was also there. And so when you have changed clothes and you see them, uh, tell me about what it felt to be walking out of the Ellis unit. It, Honestly, the one of the first thoughts I had, which is this is ridiculous, but uh, Natalia had brought like a T-shirt and I guess sweatpants are like this now, like or joggers or what they call it, is now like a fashionable thing. And so she brought me these like gray sweatpants and I'm just like, is that what people wear now? <laughs> and I put them on and I was like, you know what, these are really comfortable. Okay. I, I think there's something to this and <laughs> you know I'm just like this is nice I was wearing normal underwear I wasn't forced to wear boxers uh, my clothes smelled good <laughs> you know you just have all these things that you're just like wow that's different I like it you know I remember what this was like you know and it just felt really good you're just walking out and I mean, I'm holding a TDC red chain bag in free world clothes, and I'm walking out to Miss Evelyn, who's bawling her eyes out already. Uh, you know, just like, wow, uh, it finally happened. And that first day, it still didn't feel real. <laughs> like, I had this weird self subconscious feeling of, like, well, at any moment they could call and make me go back. I knew. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it was just like, I mean, I I made my seventh parole, so it was just like, I. it's not like I don't have any faith in the system. It's just like you have to be ready for disappointment at all times. And so when you finally get given a gift again, you know, to have some kind of closure to say that, okay, I did this. Like, it's done. Like, this part's done okay you just almost feel like it could be taken back at any moment yeah but i was just yeah i was just happy uh quiet didn't really say a whole lot uh i tried to be as open as i could for my family and 
you know, took a lot of phone calls and uh, got handed a cell phone that I had no idea how to work. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, it just, it was amazing. So what was it like to physically be in the presence, to be with your family and the people you love? It almost felt like I was breaking a rule. Like, <laughs> Uh, that drive home, it, like I said, it was just like, uh, am I supposed to do, like, I can hug you, right? Like, I'm not going to get in trouble. Like, me and the, Natalia sat in the back seat and everyone drove us. And it was just like, this is real. Like, how does this feel like it was yesterday? Like, that I was doing this before. Like, why does it feel like at the snap of a finger seven years go by, you know, and it was just like a shock. And I'm looking at Natalia, you know, and when I left, she was in high school and now she's in her second year of teaching after graduating college. And, uh, you know, how is Miranda going to about to be getting her PhD when she had barely was in her freshman year of college? Or, you know, like, you're just like, and even things like that were sad, like, I can't call my grandma. She's been gone. And I can't call my mom because she's been in a nursing home. And, uh, you know, it's ups and downs because you realize those things that have happened over the years come and go to you, you know. Uh, But overall, it's just a sense of just being able to breathe fully again. Like the sun shines brighter, the wind feels better at your back. Everything is just, you see such positive positivity in everything. How long have you been free as we sit here today? Um, almost five months. And what have you experienced being free that you didn't expect to experience while you were inside waiting to get out? Um I always heard from guys that, you know, you would get out and forget about this place and that it would just go away. And I've realized that sometimes you do have those moments where I sit here and feel like I've been out, I've been out working for a long time or I've been at the lake house for a while or uh, that I wasn't gone that long, you know, that there, I've already had memories that have left me in prison or, you know, and so you kind of feel like, is that supposed to be okay? Like, is that normal to feel like I wasn't gone as long as I was when going through it, it felt like forever, you know? And, um, but, you know, I really, you have that stigma back and, you know, I applied for three jobs and got hired at all three when I got out. Um, like, okay, I'm glad that's not, I wish more guys would know that. Um, and, you know, there's just all these things that people think you're not going to be able to do. Like, oh, it'll be hard for you to get a car or a truck because I got finance for a car on my own already. Like, wow. You just do it. You know, there's so many things that I don't know if it's prison lingo or the rumor mills that 
it's so easy to get down on ourselves in there and think that we don't have a second chance. But I think that's the main thing for me. It's like, oh, or it's like, oh yeah, you won't be able to do something because you went to prison. And it's just like, <laughs> who told you that? <laughs> like, why is that a thing for us to even acknowledge? Like, it's ridiculous. And so I've been glad that that's been one of the things I've experienced. It's like all the times I'll accomplish something, I'll just be like, yep, they were wrong. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I knew it. I knew it. Like, I knew me and other guys like me that have been through this, I know we can do this. Like, this isn't – guys ask me all the time, like, well, how do you not drink? And I'm like, how do you drink? Like, why is that even a question? Uh or, you know, well, how, how hard is it being on parole? And I'm like, well, how hard is it for you not being on parole? Like, <laughs> we're both out here living our lives trying to be good people, right? Like, you're trying to take care of your family. I, I mean, I don't have a family to take care of, but in a sense, I'm doing the same thing, you know? Uh, there's no difference between being on parole and not being on parole, or uh, there doesn't have to be a difference for me going to prison and this next person not going to prison, you know? Um, at the end of the day, we're just human beings trying to uh, do the best we can. And it, uh, fighting against that uh, judgment mentality of that just because you've gone through the system, uh, you're supposed to be doomed or something. That's just ridiculous to me. So what are your plans for the future now? What do you see? Wow. Um, well, I don't get to be completely normal yet because I am on parole. Uh, I get off June 2023, um, and once that happens, uh, I mean, more things are available. I feel like I can go within Texas. I can live anywhere in Texas. That's fine. So uh, my biggest thing is just kind of getting financially stable, um, saving some money up. Uh, You know, I feel like I've been able to – the first few months, you kind of got – I've noticed there was just a lot of things I didn't have anymore. You know, I got rid of so much stuff, uh, clothing, furniture. Some of the clothing I found was no longer usable. Um, you know, there's just things like that. And I, I mean, I wanted to get it. I didn't have a chest of drawers. So there's like all these things you find that, you know, are, wow, like I kind of need some things right now. So for me, it's been – I feel like I've caught up on all that. Uh, I have clothes. I have work clothes. I have all the tools I need for work. Uh, I have steady transportation. Uh, you know, I have all my necessities now. And so now it's kind of like I'm gearing towards what does the future hold? What do I see my life being like? And for me, I turned 32 in a week, um, less than a week now. And um, so it's like, okay, well, I feel like I'm, at a good point in my life where I can start thinking about my future and, um, you know, what does that hold? What does that look like? And for me, it's always been, I just would love to have a family and, uh, to hopefully meet somebody that I feel like I can, uh, you know, be my counterpart in life and to, uh, share the rest of my life with and hopefully have a family. And, um, so to me, it's just getting ready for that and not rushing, the other part of it. I just want to be available is that's my biggest part in life right now is being available to when that day comes and that person is in my life. And I can just feel like, 
well, am I ready? And I'll just be like, yep. And I have to be like, oh, man, I had all this time and I didn't do anything. Like, uh, you never started saving up for a house yet or, I mean, you know, things like that. Just that's kind of what my goals are is uh, to just really work hard while I'm still single and without kids and not being married and put as much money away as humanly possible and just to make myself available, you know, and whenever the right person comes along and go from there. Well, you, you said something that I made an, a note about. Um, you talked about in the context of what goes on in prison and and not letting what happens define you. Right. And so with all that has happened in your life as we sit here today, kind of what have you come to see and say about yourself? I mean, what what does Taylor stand for and, and who is Taylor? I think the biggest thing that I stand for today is just trying to be a selfless person and to be somebody in my family and friends' lives that they can uh, not necessarily always look up to, which I would hope they would, but to know that they can count on me, that I'm going to be there just to make myself available to the people I love because I spent a lot of time pushing people away, uh, letting life, things in life uh, affect me negatively. I want to leave a really good legacy for those that know me, that to be kind of like a good shoulder to lean on, uh, regardless of what I've been through. Um, I just want to be able to one day just somebody look me in the eye and shake my hand and tell me that they were so glad that they got to know me or you know I have this image of one day <laughs> a box being lowered into the ground and you know just hearts being filled with like you know what that was a good guy you know he always did me right or you know hopefully uh, one day a, a kid going off to college thinking about you know, I have a really good dad or uh, maybe my wife going to bed at night thinking, you know, wow, I really got a good husband. Like, I'm so blessed. That's what I think life is about now. And that's what I want to leave behind is that it didn't matter what all I had to go through to get to where I'm at, but that I still got there and that I didn't let the hard times in life change me negatively and that you know, for whatever reason, I got given a second chance and that I never let go of it, that, you know, people will think about me one day and smile. Well, I know that right now I can't shake your hand, but I will tell you how <laughs> incredibly glad I am to know you. And I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me. You are just an absolutely amazing young man. And it is just remarkable how you have dealt with everything that you have experienced 
And I want you to know that you are have made a tremendous impact and contribution to my life. Thank you, Ed. I appreciate it. I know I might not be able to even get to have this interview if it wouldn't have been for your help. So I can't tell you how much I am grateful for you being in my life as well. Well, good. Let's uh, definitely stay in touch. And I absolutely know that you are going to realize all the hopes that you have for your life and that you just have a great life ahead of you. And so thanks so much for spending the time talking to me. You're welcome. And thank great. you. Okay, thanks. <laughs>